hear all the laughter. There's a lot of spirit and a lot of being awake this morning. Thank you, Bill. This this morning, I'm not here to introduce Paul Beecham. You know Dr. Paul Beecham. But I did want to stand here to let you know that I did not approach him. He is one of the people in this class that has come to me from time to time saying he would like to speak to the class on a particular topic or he would like to teach. And I, as the one, along with George, we, we get the various teachers, certainly appreciate that attitude. If you will, join me in welcoming Paul to speak to us about a very important It's just going to be more of the same old stuff. The title for this lesson was Getting to the Heart of the Matter. The inspiration for this for this uh, lesson came after the death of Carol Anthony, a woman younger than me, 71 years old, down at the gym doing what she felt she needed to be doing to be taking care of herself. Now, I was told that we need a devotional in this program, so here it goes. This is David out of the 139th Psalm. We're talking about the physical body today. David said, For you created me, my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You, you, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When you made me in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth or in the depths of the womb, your eyes saw my unformed body. All, how about this? All the days adorned, ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knew us before we were. And we know that He is our Creator. He's the Creator of the whole of the whole earth. He is our physical Creator and our spiritual life. We are made out of stardust through the ends of of uh, of time past, when the elements of the uh, universe, the common elements, made stars and they blew up and. And through God knows how long it was, and He's the only one that really does know how long it was. Uh, ultimately, He made this earth, and we believe that one of the reasons He did it was to a platform or a place where He is going to show us the loving and redemptive side of Himself. Now, the Lord made Adam and Eve spirit and flesh. And you and I know that um, from the scriptures that we are living downstream from the curse of sin and death. And the, that tendency, that innate tendency in us to have our own way, do it our own way, the human race has collectively told God, uh, no thanks, I really prefer the way I see it, like to do it, do my thing my own way. And the result of that is that uh, every one of us 
are in a situation where the death rate's 100%. <laughs> and uh, we are all going that way unless the Lord comes back. We also believe, though, in the, we believe in death, but we also believe in the resurrection. And we believe we're going to live again. We believe we're going to have new, specially equipped bodies that will last for eternity. And we're going to spend eternity in the presence of God. Thank you, Lord, and amen. Okay. Now, the issue today with me as a doctor is the issue of our stewardship over the physical side of us. And as adults, God gives us then both the privilege and the responsibility of good stewardship about ourselves. And so all of us are doing, uh, if you will, uh, the best we can about it. We're all dying, but in the meanwhile, these degenerative processes that are killing us, uh, we have, we believe we have some things we can do about it, right? And so we're all, and we'll talk about that if, as the time allows. But um, today I want to talk about the problem that is has been increased in our generation with changes in the way people behave and changes in what we eat. The death rate from cardiac-related illnesses is just sky high. Can y'all, how many, how many folks in our class have died in the last year or two with cardiac related stuff? Now, I'm going to talk to you today, I hope, uh, as an, as an individual person who is in there with the rest of you, and, and talk some about what I think, some of what I've learned as a doctor, some of my experiences about it. All of the Beecham men older than me are dead. And 100% of them died with cardiac related stuff plus my father's sister. So it wouldn't be terribly surprising if I have heart disease. Would any of y'all be surprised given that history? About the year about the year 2000, uh, when I was working down at Georgia Diagnostic Center, Eric and I would go out uh, at lunch and run. And I noticed, so in 2000 I'd have been 62. That's a young man. I could still, I had a lot of vigor at 62. But I noticed that when I first started running, that I had a little bit of uncomfortableness right in the center of my chest. Just uncomfortableness. But that if I'd slow down in about 10 to 12 minutes, it was gone. Then I could run just like I always could. So that made it pretty easy to kind of blow that off, right? I was running a half marathon down from down Peachtree Street in front of the Fox and I saw an old man up there running ahead of me and I caught up with him. He wasn't any older than me. He just had white hair and I had none. <laughs> I said, man, you're looking good there, buddy. Said, yeah. I said, uh, he said, yeah, and particularly because uh, uh, about eight weeks ago uh, I had um, a bypass surgery. Oh my God. And I said, well, what kind of symptoms were you having? He said, oh, just a little uncomfortableness. <laughs> well, when he told me that, I had been having a little uncomfortableness under here for about three years. 
And at the end of that race, and that race, during that race, it didn't go away. I went home and called my cousin Randy and said, Randy, I think today's the day I need to quit being my own cardiologist. And he set it up with a doctor to meet me Friday morning after Thanksgiving. It was a day off, and uh, unfortunately, as a cardiologist, oh, there has to be on call. So they took me over there, and I jumped on their machine and ran that sucker out for 17 minutes without a single symptom. Nothing. Absolutely zilch. Okay? He was pissed. <laughs> he really was. He ran me through the cardiac side of it, too. And here I am coming here on his day off, complaining of chest pain, and, and, and you run, run me through it, and it's nothing. And I said, well, then what do you think it could be? I really wanted to slap him. He said, I don't know. Talk to your interns and walked out of the room. <laughs> It was, it was uh, three years after that that Sarah and I went down and had these little uh, screening things where they do a little mild screen just of your heart and they check out the calcium and they check it in four places and so mine was, my readings were zero, zero, 26 and 638 to which they said, you need to go see a cardiologist quickly. I was riding down the road coming from Huntsville, Alabama when I got the news. And uh, when I told him my story, uh, three years of chest pain and this test, which is testing for calcium, he took me straight down to St. Joe, lined me up, and went in there for cardiac catheterization. And I got it. I didn't have a single blockage more than 80%. You do not get symptoms from your heart at 80%. If you consider a, a, a vessel, a, a cardiac uh, artery, you can put your finger over the hose when you're gardening, right? And you can restrict the opening that the water is going to get out of by about 95%, right? What happens? The water goes out there. It's called the Venturi effect. And our hearts are perfectly capable of producing all the blood flow we need until you are at least 90% blocked. You're not going to have any symptoms. Go exercise till you drop on your face. And you're going to still be alive, you and not going to close it up. The Venturi effect works. Darn good thing, because some of y'all got it, like I had. I had three blockages of about 80%. So then what's the matter with me having something here going on in my chest? Nevertheless, my doctor's pretty sure he's going to cure that, right? I'm telling you this is too long. I'm sorry, but it's the only way to explain it. Um, and so he did those three stems, and I got home and started walking around in my yard and running around. I called him up and I said, I'm sorry, but I still got the same symptoms that I had before. He brought me back in there and recatheterized me. He said, no, your stents are open. It was another year or two later that the gastroenterologist got me up on top of a table in the place on my knees, sucking, you know, some stuff through a straw and discovered that when I swallow about two-thirds of the way down my esophagus, 
the esophage, the esophageal wave breaks up. And what I've been suffering with all the time is the esophageal spasms. Still got them. It ain't killed me yet. So now here's the problem. What's going to kill you and what isn't? And all I do is just take one of those tablets that everybody takes and, and it chills it out. And if I go out there and start doing it too fast, I slow down for five minutes and the esophageal spasm says thank you, thank you, and relaxes itself and everything's cool. And so far I'm alive. But not everybody gets that privilege to do Caroline is doing what she thought she ought to be doing, and even if, even though she made it alive to the hospital, that's better than Mary Beth Meyer's husband. I have seen too many people die. To I've got to share with you a little bit of what I've seen. Mary Beth Myers, who used to be in this church and worked for me in my office a while, husband started having chest pain, so he got in his car. And drove himself home. Yes or no? No. When he got there, he was still hurting bad, and said he says to Mary Beth, please drive me to the emergency room. No. She starts driving him from somewhere over here near, uh, on the, on the back side of Provino's, and before she can get to North Fulton Hospital, guess what happened? He died. And when she finally got him there and ran in and screamed and they came back outside and did all of their things, he's dead. Too late. Too late. Kathy Hare. Do you all know Tom and Kathy Hare? Tommy Hare's wife, uh, Kathy, had been watching television and saw a little something about cardiac symptoms. And Kathy was at home by herself at 63 seven years ago, had a little something that she felt, she said, kind of sick. And shortly after feeling kind of sick, she had some pain in her jaw. And she remembered a thing that sometimes heart pain is atypical. And she drove herself down to the walk-in emergency place down at uh, King Road and Crossville Road, where the doctor did an EKG, popped some, some aspirin under her, gave her some tyronitroglycerin, which expands it, and said, you, my dear, are having a heart attack. And then with adequate care, they took her down to the hospital and gave her one stent, and Kathy's doing nicely. Frank Miller, my father-in-law, was a 63-year-old man, and I knew his father, he was an old man when I was a boy. And they and they died of cardiac disease. But Mr. Frank, my father-in-law, had no trouble at all and was in Thomasville, Georgia, or Moultrie. At the 50th anniversary of his wife, he was 63 years of wife's high school graduation. He was 63 years old. After the occasion on Saturday night, he went to the motel. In the motel, he began to experience some pain in his neck. He got up out of the bed, put his clothes on, and drove himself to the emergency room. In the emergency room, he told the doctor what the problem was. The doctor, in his great wisdom, never did an EKG, and told him that he, Mr. Frank, admitted that he had, I always called him Mr. Frank, 
my mama would have slapped me if I'd have called him Frank. <laughs> I uh, to- told him that uh, he had sneezed. He said, I think you have a crick in your neck and sent him back. He went back in the bed. He got up in the middle of the night again, about one o'clock or so, and drove himself back to the emergency room where the same stupid uh, things happened, and the doctor, without getting an EKG, sent him back again under the idea that what he had was a crick in his neck. He finished out the night and lived. He got up the next day and drove himself home on Sunday. He got up on Monday morning and went to his doctor in Decatur, Georgia, who said, you have had a heart attack, and put him in the hospital. This is 1979. Nobody is jumping on your case real quick to want to do a bypass, right? Y'all remember? Kept him in the hospital. He had an uneventful recovery. Sat around in a rocking chair. Chilled out about five or six or seven days. Looks like he's recovering nicely. Same home. Y'all know what's coming, don't you? And he and his wife sat around the house uh, there for dinner and afterwards crawled in the bed bedtime and he said, I sure do love you, honey. And she said, I love you too. And about ten seconds later she heard that crazy thing that's called the death rattle. He's gone. Gone. She and her Lack of understanding. You know what she did? She called her daughter, who was the closest. She didn't call us. She called the daughter, who was the closest. Well, she's 15 minutes away. The daughter called 911. Then the daughter called me. Then I called the house. Miss Sarah. Y'all may have known Sarah's mother. She was here at this church. Answered the phone. I said, Miss Sarah, take your fist and hit him as hard as you can right in the middle of his chest. You know what she said? She said, Oh, I can't do that. I might hurt him. How are you going to hurt a dead man? How are you going to hurt a dead man? Now, I'm going to spring from there and say to you that I've been a doctor since 1970. One of the things that I, one of the places where I learned to be a doctor, really learned how to be a doctor, was moonlighting. I was a senior student. We covered an emergency room. We delivered babies and saw people come in there and die from shotgun wounds. And But that's one thing about it. You learn how to be a doctor in the trenches. And I have been called in on too many calls. Emergency. People have had a heart attack. They've got something wrong with them. They're laying up in the cardiac unit. And they're being monitored. And the moment that monitor goes off, everybody springs there in 30 to 45 seconds. You're doing things. The rate of saving people in the hospital like that ain't real good. Okay? So the next thing I want to say is anything you can do, if you are with a person who is having a possible cardiac event, anything you can do is better than nothing. And I'm going to give you some advice on on doing that. When they were working on my third stint, it was a tiny little place down on the bottom side of the right side of the heart. And there was an Asian guy there working with a doctor. He said, I can't get past this thing. I'm, I'm laying there on the table watching the whole thing on the tube. And I can see him moving that thing. And he said, 
but I have never had one that I couldn't ultimately get by. That's the only reason why I didn't have a bypass. He kept on, he kept on, he kept on, kept on. My doctor said to me, all of a sudden, Dr. Beecham, cough for us. And I go, <coughs> and when I went, <coughs> I closed my eyes, but there's no passage of time, mind you, no passage of time at all. I just went completely awake, going, <coughs> and the next time I opened my eyes, there was a lady standing right here beside me, and I looked at her, a nurse, and I said, is everything all right? And she said, it is now. We had to pop you a couple of times with the my doctor had stimulated me to do the same thing that happens in a heart attack. And what I want to talk about now is when you have a heart attack, what is it that kills you? And here's, here's, here's the disclaimer. It ain't the heart attack necessarily. You can have a, you can die. I'm, I could have died had I not been in the, in the operating, I mean in the uh, cardiac, cardiovascular place. Man, they had paddles on me in 10 seconds and still had to hit me twice to get me back. There's a total non-event for me. I didn't see Jesus or saw a light or anything. It just was a non-event. I can tell you that you can go from wide awake to gone faster than you can think a thought before you can ever say, I don't feel good. You can be gone. Maybe that's why when Sarah's mother died, she was sitting in a chair by her bed with her nightgown on and her hands folded in her lap and looking straight out and her eyes were wide open and she was dead. It could have happened like that, okay? And that's how it happened to me. What happens in the heart, of course, is that the usual is you get a little thing like that and it goes all over here. And, and, and you come along, you're a little Q-R-S-T. And these, this little jewel right here is what pumps blood. And so the way we stay alive is that on a rhythmic basis, our heart gets a big jolt of electricity and squeezes. When it squeezes, out comes the blood to the body through the aorta for the left side of the heart. And the right side of the heart is pushed, is taking the blood that came back from the body, venous blood, and pushing it in the lung. Yes, more. What can happen when you're in the middle of the heart attack is that it, your heart doesn't quit on you. It starts doing a thing that looks like that. Can you all see? All just see that? Now, it'll do that for a little while, but it ain't going to do it very long because you're going to die. And this is an arrhythmia. And that does not pump blood. This pumps blood. This doesn't pump blood. And this can deteriorate and not look. It'll start out looking like that, but it'll later on deteriorate. And then when it deteriorates, you get some a little of this. You get right there. And then you're gone, goose. Okay? So you can have a bad heart attack and and lose a lot of pumping capacity as long as you do not have an electrical event in which what they did to me was produce a short. It's like a bad it's like a bad spot in a lamp cord, okay? You get a you get a frizzled place and it short circuits and it blows the fuse and the lamp goes out, right? 
And that same thing happens in your heart. When a person goes ahead and dies from the heart attack, you can live through the blockage and the subsequent amount of whatever amount of loss you can, you can, there are plenty of people have, have, have done that and lived a long, long, long time afterwards. It is the, it is the electrical problem that is the matter. You with me? That's the big issue. What time is it? How are we doing on time? Okay. We gotta, I gotta hurry. Now, if it's an electrical problem, uh, does anybody know where the shock machines are in this building? Where? Right where? There, uh, where? By the kitchen. By the, kitchen? By, by the exit door that goes around. Do any of y'all know how to use them? No. Mm-hmm. Some of you do. Where else do we have them in this place, George? Down in the sacristy. In the sacristy. Okay. But you got to have somebody there to, to put that booger up, haven't you? There's a voice prompt. Yes, yes. But I'm saying, nevertheless, when an event happens, and so what you're going to die from if you have a heart attack is is likely not the blockage of blood flow in a particular artery. What you're going to die from is a cardiac event like this. Paul? Yes. Can we ask George how many people, are all the ushers trained? I wouldn't say all of them, but probably 20% of them are. Okay. The rest of what I'm going to say before we stop and ask questions, Jess, is, is, is going to be centered around this one point. Time is of the essence. Number two, it's a, it is an electrical event that's got to happen if you're going to get you back to life, okay? We had a boy come in from Lake Sinclair and they had, he had drowned. And his buddies had done compressions on him for probably an hour. He walked in a lovely shade of purple, rosy purple. And I said to myself, more purple than her sweater. And, and I said to myself, when he came in, you're dead. But he wasn't because he didn't have a cardiac event. He drowned. We saved him in the emergency room from the drowning. Not because that I knew how to do a tracheostomy quick. But the surgeon walked in, and he knew how to do it, and we sucked him all out, and he's still saying, like, he's breathing, you know. But nevertheless, um, I thought we resuscitated ourselves a vegetable because his heart was there, but he's drowned. The next morning, I woke up and went down to the room where that young man was, and he was alive and awake and eating his breakfast. He did not have an electrical problem in his heart. He was young. His heart was strong. He lived all the way through drowning without his heart quitting on him. Isn't that amazing? Oh, several of us have asked about the aspirin. Help us yeah, we get there. Let me let me let me uh, let me let me come back. Uh, y'all don't want two sessions of this. Um, the when I was a young doctor. Do you know what the, was the first instructions to do that was given out by the CPR people when they did our training? Give three hard blows to the chest, and then of course you 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 know you want to look and listen and feel for a pulse and do all that stuff. Now the latest thing is they stop you at doing the breaths. Do you know why they no longer tell you to do the blows to the chest and they no longer tell you to do the breaths? 
Nobody knows how to do it. And they ultimately decided it's wasted time. Instead of, 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 you know, 12 or 20 compressions, and then stop and give two good long breaths, and then you might want to check then and test and see if you got a pulse or anything, then you go back to the compressions. They decided that the smartest thing you can do when that's there, you're there by yourself, is just keep doing compressions. Now do them 100 a minute and don't quit. Now I'm going to tell you, I don't care how good you are on the compressions. If the person has had one of these things happen in the, in the electrical system of their heart, they are not going to live on, unless it's almost a, a, a complete miracle. And so Dr. Paul Beecham is telling you today that if you fall out over at my house, or you, you're there, you're there with somebody, you know, and they're sitting in the chair and all of a sudden they slump or they fall or, or something happens or you walk in the room, my friend Horace Curry, who is my age, heard his wife fall in the hall. She was coming back from the bathroom and fell in the hall and he got in there and did compressions. She, she never lived. It's hard to save somebody who's had the electrical event by doing compressions, okay? So, it's also hard to save somebody who is dying because there's not much time while you run away from the, where they are to go to the telephone and then have a minute and a half or two or two and a half minute conversation with a, a lady on the phone while you try to tell her where in the world it is that you live. What I'm telling you is, is they're not advertising it these days, okay? But that still doesn't mean it might not be good. I'm going to tell you that if you are in the presence of somebody who, if you just walk in and they have fallen over and you don't know whether they've been down there 30 seconds or they've been down there 10 minutes, okay? Let's just say you don't know. Stand up here a minute, Al. What I want you to do before you do anything else is say, Al, Al, and Al doesn't answer me. That's the end of my diagnosis. Okay? <laughs> Al is unconscious and does not answer me. I'm going to take my fist and his sternum is right there. And I'm not even worried about being terribly good on where his sternum is. I'm going to start beating him in right there in the, in the middle of his chest. And, and let me tell you, here's how hard you're going to do it. And you're going to do about 15 of them before you quit. Why? Because even the electric shock thing doesn't bring you back on the first one. The best thing that you could possibly do for that person before calling 911 or giving them a single compression or, or listening to see if they're breathing, anything. Hit them in the chest as hard as you can about 15 times, and that takes a 15 seconds. Y'all with me now? Now, if you get lucky, so I'm not guaranteeing anything out of this, this is, that would be the answer to the question. If you discover somebody, you're with somebody, and they suddenly become unconscious, what is the first thing that you could do? And the first thing is you spend the next 15 seconds beating the pure living tar out of their chest. Because it just might happen that you could start the rhythm of the heart again. Heart attack or no heart attack. The best thing you'd like them to do is open their eyes and say, for God's sake, will you quit hitting me in the chest? <laughs> You know, that would be a, a, a lovely thing to have happen. But the the ability, your ability to, you know, what we're talking about when you're in the house by yourself. You're going to have to run and go find the phone 
Then you have to come back, and you know, and you're going to try to dial the phone and start doing compressions and all that. There's a lot of wasted time. You've got to know that that first minute to a minute and a half is absolutely precious. When you get beyond one or uh, two minutes, you start getting acidic things that build up in the body as part of the dying process, and it is hard to bring people back. About a year and a half ago, I'm running down Peachtree Street on the Buckhead Sizzler race. Get right in front of uh, Lenox Mall, and here's about a 35-year-old guy laying in the right in the gutter, and people are all over him working on him. And I said, "How long has he been down?" And they said, "About three or four minutes." Now that's not long, is it? About three or four minutes. And I stood there and watched, and I said, "They're doing a good job," but you know what else I said to myself? He's dead, and he ain't coming back. And then while I was standing there, the the, the people got there with a, a, a 911 call. And then, of course, you know, you know, before the 911 shot goes on, then all the compressions quit. Well, they had to quit long enough for it to back off. They, they didn't get him back. So I don't know what the percentages are for the chances that you or me could do anything that might save our wife or husband or good friend's life. I don't really care what the percentages are. I don't care if it's 5% chance or a half a 1%. In my opinion, if there's anything that you could do immediately before you go to the telephone, about 15 blows to the chest as hard as you can hit them. You will not break their ribs. Your fist will bounce off of their sternum just as good as as uh, drumsticks off of a drum. You're not going to break their ribs because you're bouncing off their ribs. You're trying to create a shock wave. And you remember that thing where they say if you're by yourself and you think you might be having a heart attack, start coughing? So now, let's let's say what a good hard cough would do. And y'all, y'all tell me how strong an impulse is this. <coughs> That's what they're going to tell you to do if you're by yourself, okay? Y'all heard what I did. I'm sorry. I'm making a fool out of me to show you what I'm talking about. If you're absolutely by yourself, there is some evidence that if you could do that, that you can create a shock wave experience in the heart and the deep breath uh, that goes with it. This is before you've passed out now, okay? You're by yourself. This is before you've passed out. You got something going on, you don't know what it is, so you're gonna be on 911. <clears throat> yes, and here's where, I, <clears throat> here's where I live. <clears throat> and you don't quit, okay? You just do it. Now, is it silly? Yeah, it might be silly, but it might save your life. And the same thing goes with the compressions. They just might, they can reverse that, you know, you, you can get the shock wave in there, and all of a sudden, the heartbeat picks back up. It, then, then you've got, then you've got a chance. Okay, enough questions. What does lack of oxygen have to do with? That? Lack oxygen is you, you've got to have oxygen. The whole purpose of the heart is to produce uh, a substance called blood flowing around in your body, and then that blood, since it has come from your lungs, has been reoxygenated, and has a high percentage of oxygen in the cells live off the oxygen. Not breathe. 
Yes. Yes. Yes, and I'm not tempted. And unfortunately, there, that is that is another way to have a cardiac event. That is, your oxygen saturation sinks to be so low, and he may have been in a slow heart rate, and he may have been in something else. That mm-hmm. and and with a low oxygen rate, even if the heart was still being, but that's a pulmonary event there. Yes. Yes, ma'am. And it don't uh the, the, the aspirin daily is a eighty one milligram. That's the one I take that's enteric coated. If um if my wife if it happened to my wife, I would go grab any aspirin I could grab and I'd probably get two of them. And if it was my own self and I didn't have water, I'd probably put two regular aspirin in my mouth or a five hundred milligram one and chew it up real good and drink some water. If I was awake and could do anything for myself, if it's for the other person, uh, and they have a little, if they have any consciousness, ask them, chew this aspirin up. There is a new aspirin put out by Bayer, which is, which will melt in your mouth. And you can absorb it through the bottom of your tongue. The veins up under the bottom of your tongue will absorb some. But Paul, you're, you're saying daily, 81 milligrams. Daily, 81 milligrams, yes. Just a minute ago, you said 500 if you're really... Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm being... Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to... It, it, the answer is the 500 is not going to hurt you. Okay, that's what if I you, thought. You, you're you're trying to get enough aspirin quick in the system. Right. Because what you really wanted to do is, is to come back around where that blockage is and uh, do uh, an anti-clotting thing and see if it's a possibility that it might even open that sucker back up. It depends It depends on a bunch of things. So if we're using the same aspirin, uh, the mm-hmm. little 81 milligram thing, you need to take half a, a dozen of them. The 81 milligram thing is kind of a daily anti, uh, anti-clotting anti thing going on. And then I'm taking some other stuff uh, that, uh, that I take. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Well, I just showed you everywhere I go. I have that in my purse. Look at there. Now these are ibuprofen, and they are no good for what we just talked about. Ibuprofen will not do the trick. It needs to be aspirin. Okay, aspirin is an aspirin is an anti-clotting thing. Yes, ma'am. Let me expand on what you just said. Okay, listen, y'all. Stand up, honey. That's right. Don't get in the car. Don't get in the car. Call the EMT people. Yes. Do what you need to do. They have got, they can start the IVs on you. Yes. They are radioing ahead to the ER people. When you hit that ER with a cardiac event, which they are already suspicious of, you are moving in. If there is any chance of saving you, they will do it. Exactly a lot of what I'm trying to talk about today is way before the 9-11 folks yeah. get there. Yeah. But don't go down 400. No. How many of us? No. And another thing we need to get clarified in this same school class. Yes. Because of our event last summer. Okay. Is legally when the EMT people come. Yes. 
Can you tell them what hospital you want to go to? I don't know. You can, you can, I think. I clarified that. And? We need to find out a little bit more about that. I talked to EMT people after Mary Mashburn's event. Yes. And they told me, yes, you tell them where you want to go. If you do not tell them. Yes. They're going to the nearest. 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 But we need to get that literally clarified. Yes. Okay. But most of the ambulance companies, the one that came and got us, was going to take us someplace else, and we insisted on going to Wellstar. There you go. As soon as we said no, we want to go to Wellstar, they had no problem. Away they went. Okay. That's it. I'll tell you, I have seen some really, I've seen doctors do some of the dumbest things you wouldn't believe. I'm not going to, we're almost out of time. Are we not out of time? Mostly out of time. Go ahead. Uh, you're not sure the gene pool, and uh, I've got two cousins that just recently went and got the uh, monitor where they take a picture of your heart. Yes. As a preventive thing. And yeah, but, but, but that's calcium they're measuring. Yeah. Is there a particular one or one in the area? I don't know. There was one up on across from North Fulton Hospital. Uh, it cost you $300. My wife's brother had done it and said, you know, his, I guess his father had died. He said, yeah, gee, I was great. So Sarah said, let's give that to each other for Christmas. And so we went over there and did it. And uh, uh, and so I, I don't know. I think you. there also are times... When they're running around with a bus and they've got a unit on it, uh, have y'all ever seen those things? They pull up and they did one up in, in the front yard of CVS down on on the Holcomb Bridge one time. Okay, yes. Is there a more definitive test than that? More definitive? Oh yeah, the more definitive test. Uh, you can you can do a variety of of, uh, of, of studies that uh, can help you. The IV study that they can do. Um, will only show areas in the heart that are underperfused. They're not getting enough. The definitive test is a catheterization. And the good news is the catheterization doesn't hurt y'all. It doesn't hurt. I've had it twice. I promise you it doesn't hurt at all. And which is surprising is if it's messing around your heart and it doesn't hurt. Might kill you, but it doesn't hurt. <laughs> Go ahead. I just have two quick things about the aspirin. Yes. Most of us take the coated yes, aspirin. You coated. It does. You know, it takes a long time. That's to right. So that's just a daily protection. That's that's. If you if you if you are having an event, whatever aspirin you've got, I'm gonna tell you, chew it up. Chew it. You put up with you put up with the taste. Chew it up and get some get it washed down your your your, your mouth as quick as you can. Okay. And my second question is. I uh, I have a pacemaker. Yeah. Okay. And I've been told that my heart will never stop. Well, that, in that sense, you just got insurance against what I've been talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. Do you have uh, an ejection fraction problem? Yes. yes. How does it enter into the... The ejection fraction means when your heart squeezes, and they, they do these things on me all the time, you know, I'm 10 years into this, it, some blood goes up, and when the valve is closing, some blood comes back down. If you've got a bad valve, some of it goes up, and too much of it comes back down. 
So an ejection fraction is if the left ventricle squeezes, uh, you'd love to have 95 to 100% of it stayed up above the aortic valve. It closed real quick and did a good job. If you've got an ejection fraction problem, see that the valve is leaking too much of it back down, like my mitral valve, or your heart has been, is compromised, it's not strong, it's somewhat weak, so in, instead of giving a normal amount, you're getting less. Normal for our age of ejection fractions, which started about 45% and run to about 60%, and I remember they were surprised. I mean, I was a runner, you know. They were surprised that I had an ejection fraction of about 65%. Maybe your kids, uh, a grown, uh, a young man in good shape would, might have 75. That'd be, that'd be, that'd be it. Uh, you can live on 25 or 30 after you've had bad heart trouble, but you're going, you're going to walk slow and you're going to sit a lot, you know. So the ejection fraction is, a, is not is, is the strength of the squeeze, but it's also the leakiness of the vessel of the valve. I have a question. What if you suspect a possible stroke? Would the aspirin help with that? Yeah, it possibly yes. Okay. A stroke aspirin could help uh, because we, when they, they think you've had a stroke and they get you to the ER, they're gonna give you some IV stuff. It's real clot busters. They've got wonderful clot busters. Here's my concern: is the what can you do immediately? immediately when, when somebody's down. And what I'm saying is, don't spend much time fiddling around. The, the, you, there is just that outside chance that if you can strike them in the chest, that you could get their heart back started again. Then they live long enough to get the EMT people here. Okay, yes? Should everybody be taking aspirin? Uh, as long as you can, most folks, most of us think that. Yeah, I do. I Paul, do. tell yes. us the baby aspirin. A baby, the baby aspirin is the 81 degrees. That's 81 milligrams. That's what they have in us to do. Yes. But shouldn't the baby aspirin be taken at night? It makes no difference, night or day. I've been reading. It's 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 good. A lot of heart attacks happen at night. But when you're doing that, all you're doing is throwing a little bit of anti-clot stuff in there. And what you're doing is you are helping while you've got that 95 or 96 percent blockage and you're still living and not hurting. What you're doing is keeping that thing from backing up and becoming sludge, and the sludge decides not that it won't slide on through. You're keeping, you're just doing a little bit of watering that down and, and making it where it wants to, uh, the blood where it will not clot when it reaches that time. If you, blood likes to flow and unimpeded. And when the blood flows over and starts eddying, an eddying current, you know what you see down in the creek? That eddying current is, is why people with uh, chronic arrhythmias can throw a, 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 a stroke. The eddying blood has a tendency to decline. Well, thank you for letting me share that with you. And uh, uh, we'll, you know, May the Lord have mercy on us all. Okay. Thanks, Paul. <clears throat> on the aspirin thing, I just recently, well, even after my heart attack, <clears throat> the doctor has told me on that is 
percentage-wise, there's supposedly more heart attacks occur during the night than during the day. And a half-life of a, these baby aspirins is like six hours. So it, he recommended that I take mine at night, and let's just pass that on to y'all. And also, as he's, um, Paul mentioned, and I can verify that, if you can't walk from building A to here and have an easy time breathing when you get here, go have your heart looked at because that's what happened to me, and uh, it'll, it'll help. So, Paul, thank you very much for that. So let's close our door, our door, our day, <laughs> with uh, our thought for the day, and it's, it's lack of faith that makes people afraid of meeting challenges. And the person that said this, we all know, has faced many challenges, and that's from Muhammad Ali. So... Have fun this evening, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you.